in God's silence here. We need to see what he's doing. God's silence does not mean God's absence. He continues to work his good purposes in the midst of bad situations, even in spite of the sinful behavior of the people he's chosen to rescue and redeem for himself. We need to remember this. God is not rewarding sin. He is redeeming sinners. I hope that that sentence, that phrase, just continues to get burned into our minds and our memories as we finish out the rest of Genesis. Because that is the message of the rest of Scripture. This is the foundation that Genesis is laying for us. God is not rewarding sin. He's redeeming sinners. We just heard that in Romans 3 as we prayed together. This is important to keep in mind because Genesis 34 is going to present us with this moral dilemma and force us to answer this question. Who is right? Who is right in this story? And the answer is not as easy as we want it to be, okay? And so we need help here. This is God's word, and so I want to pray and ask the Spirit to lead and guide us, and then we'll dig in. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true and right and good and eternal. Lord, we thank you that it helps us to see Jesus, points us straight to him. And I pray this morning in the, the nastiness, in the, the, the mess of Genesis 34, you would help us so clearly see the Savior that we cannot help but rejoice in him. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this morning, I get to stand up here and tell you why you are right. Uh, I messed it up already. See, I can't even do it. I was going to say, I get to stand up here and tell you why you're wrong and I'm right. And that was supposed to like shock you and get your attention and be like, this is that's like an abuse of your you know, position, right? You should never do that. Um, but I can't even, I couldn't even get that right. Here's the thing. Every one of us has the tendency to want to do that, right? Every one of us has that draw in our hearts to, to, to want to, to see and help someone else see how they're wrong in a situation and how we're right in that situation. Have you ever had an argument with someone in your mind before you've actually spoken to that person? Did you win? I always win. I always win in those arguments. Listen, you get it, right? You understand what I'm talking about. We can easily be one-sided in our reasoning when it comes to sin. And what's more is what we tend to do is we ignore where others are right because of what they've done wrong. And we also ignore where we are wrong because of what we've done right. We tend to justify our own sinful actions while condemning them in others. Somewhere there has to be a balance in that, right? Here's what we're going to see in Genesis 34. Because God rescues sinners, we should respond to sinners in a way that leads them to his rescue. Because God rescues sinners, we should respond to sinners in a way that leads them to his rescue. We're going to see terrible, terrible sin right off the bat. Let's look at Genesis 34, verse 1. Leah's daughter Dinah, whom Leah bore to Jacob, went out to see some of the young women of the area. When Shechem, son of Hamer the Hivite, 
who was the region's chieftain, saw her, he took her and raped her. He became infatuated with Jacob's daughter, Dinah. He loved the young girl, and he spoke tenderly to her. Get me this girl as a wife, he told his father. So maybe not so tenderly to his father in that moment. Dinah was mentioned back in chapter 30. She was kind of, as we were going through the list of all the sons that were being born to Jacob through Leah and Rachel and their, their, uh, their slave uh, women, and, and, and then Dinah is just sort of mentioned in passing to set us up for this. And then in the last chapter, chapter 33, we learn that Jacob and his family arrived safely at Shechem and they camped in front of the city. Here we learn where the city of Shechem gets its name, okay, from this man, Shechem. Uh, Hamer the Hivite was the ruler of that region, and he named the city after his son. And, and so we quickly then learn what kind of character Hamer's son Shechem is, right? Notice the language in verse 2. It says that Shechem saw Dinah, he took her, and he raped her. Where else have we heard that language Back in the Garden of Eden, right? In Genesis 3, 6 and 7, it says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. And so she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. The sinful rebellion in the garden led immediately to devastating shame. And we've seen this pattern over and over and over in Genesis, right? When Shechem raped Dinah, not only did he assault and violate her physically, but he also brought shame and humiliation upon her socially. Because she was no longer a virgin and she was unmarried, then she was culturally unfit for marriage from, from there on out. Completely devastating. Absolutely demoralizing. But Shechem wanted to marry her. When he first saw her, he was drawn to her by lust. But then, like, it doesn't tell us how much time passes, but the, the very next verse says that, that his lust turned to love. He actually, he, he grew tender towards her. He spoke tenderly, loved her, and became infatuated with her. Literally in the Hebrew, it says that he clung to her. His soul clung to her. It's the same language used in chapter 2 where it talks about a man leaving his father and mother and clinging or bonding to his wife. But Shechem's newfound love for Dinah did not excuse his violation of her. And he wasn't leaving his father to cling to Dinah. Quite the opposite, actually. It's the... Uh, uh, he clung to his father's high position and exploited it in order to have Dinah brought to him. Dad, go, go get her. Bring me that woman as a wife. After Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, God told them what would be the consequences of their sin. And among those consequences, he told Eve, your desire will be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. Now that sounds like it's not too bad on her part, but in the very next chapter, in chapter 4, when he talks to Cain and warns him not to kill Abel, he says, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Same wording there. Instead of loving one another in a self-giving way, both would try to exert 
dominating control over the other in their relationship. But that didn't just apply to Adam and Eve because every human being since is born with a rebellious heart and a desire to do what we want instead of what God wants for us. Here we see Shechem's rebellious heart as he selfishly abused Dinah to satisfy his lust and then used his love for her to justify his demand for her to become his wife. Now, we're only four verses in, and we've already been confronted with this repulsive nature of sin. What sin does in us and to us, it's disgusting. It's dangerous. But Shechem isn't the only sinner in this story, so let's keep reading. Look at verse 5. Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, But since his sons were with his livestock in the field, he remained silent until they returned. Meanwhile, Shechem's father Hamer came to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons returned from the field when they heard about the incident. They were deeply grieved and very angry, for Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter, and such a thing should not be done. Hamer said to Jacob's sons, "'My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife.'" Intermarry with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. Live with us. The land is before you. Settle here. Move about and acquire property in it. And then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Grant me this favor, and I'll give you whatever you say. Demand of me a high compensation and gift. I'll give you whatever you ask of me. Just give me the girl to be my wife. What did Jacob do when he heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter, Dinah? He remained silent. Dads, I want to ask you, would that be your response if that happened to your own daughter? Text doesn't really elaborate here on why Jacob remained silent, not, not yet. But I can't help but wonder if his response would have been different if Dinah was Rachel's daughter instead of Leah's daughter. Jacob was taking after Adam here. He was passive in the face of sin. He was taking after his grandfather Abraham, who was passive in the face of sin at times. He was taking after Isaac, who was passive in the face of sin at times. Remember when they went to the different cities and pretended like their wives were their sisters so they wouldn't get killed? Jacob's sons, on the other hand, when they heard what happened, they left the livestock in the field and they immediately returned home. Verse 7 says that they were deeply grieved and very angry. Way back in chapter 6, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, it says the Lord was deeply grieved. It's the same Hebrew phrase that's used here. Jacob's sons had an appropriate understanding of the heinousness of Shechem's behavior. It was wicked. It was nothing but evil. And Moses, the author of Genesis, agrees. Did you notice in verse verse 7, it's his personal commentary on this situation? And he he says, Shechem committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter. And he asserts 
there, no, uh, uh, such a thing should not be done. This is Moses' commentary on what's happening right here. This is an outrage against Israel. should never be done. Never be done. This is the first time the name Israel is used not just to refer to Jacob, but to the nation that it came from. Right? Moses is writing this story. He's recounting this story for the, the Israelites, the nation that descended from Jacob, and he's helping them understand the magnitude of what Shechem had done. It's not only an offense to Jacob and his immediate family, but this is repulsive to the entire nation of Israel. This is an offense on everyone who calls themselves Jacob's son or daughter. Generations later, Moses is letting them know that they should be just as offended as Jacob's sons were. Jacob should have said the same thing that Moses said, but he didn't say anything, right? He remained silent. And Shechem's father, Hamer, was no better when he came to speak with Jacob. You notice, in all of that conversation, what did he leave out? Never said anything about what his son did to Jacob's daughter. Never acknowledged that his son had raped Dinah. In fact, rather than confronting Shechem about the injustice he committed, Hamer added to the injustice by ignoring the rape and trying to convince Jacob and his sons to give Dinah to Shechem as his wife. And not only that, but Hamer wanted the rest of Jacob's family to intermarry with his own people and share the land with them. Hey, while you're at it, if you're going to give us one daughter, why not give us the rest? Why not take ours? But there is a major problem with that offer, right? Remember back in chapter 24 when Abraham made his servant swear by the Lord that he would not find a wife for Isaac from the women of Canaan, the daughters of the Canaanites? How about in chapters 27 and 28 when Esau married Canaanite women and they made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah and Isaac commanded Jacob, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Don't do it. In the book of Deuteronomy, the last book in, the, in the, these first five that Moses wrote, God spoke to the new generation of Israel who were about to enter the land of Canaan after their parents wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and died for their rebellion against God, their sin against God. And right after he gave this new generation the Ten Commandments again, that he'd given to his parents and they didn't obey and then they, they perished he gave them the Ten Commandments. Then he told them this in Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4. You must not intermarry with the inhabitants of the land, and you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will swiftly destroy you. Pretty clear, right? Why do you think God had to tell him that? Because of things like this, right? This is a serious warning that God gives the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7. It's a serious thing that Jacob is considering here. From the time God called Abraham back in chapter 12, God had always planned for Abraham and his descendants to worship God alone. No other gods. In, in chapter 33, Jacob uh, purchased a section of the field where his family set up camp in front of the city of Shechem, and he built an altar there, and what did he call it? Do you remember? God, the God of Israel. We saw this last week. It's the first time that Jacob acknowledged God as his own God. 
After 20 years of his own wandering, Jacob finally professed his allegiance to the Lord. But his silence here stands in sharp contrast to those worshipful words in chapter 33. And the injustice that was done to his daughter was brushed aside by Hamer's tempting offer to assimilate with the Hivites. And so not only did Jacob not come to his daughter's aid, but he also entertained a proposition that would put his family's covenant relationship with God in jeopardy. Jacob's not doing so hot here. And then Shechem himself chimed in. He also never admitted to the rape, but his offer to pay whatever bride price compensation that they wanted, this was his indirect way of attempting to make restitution for what he had done. But it wasn't really restitution that he was eager for. It was Dinah herself. He wanted her so badly that he was willing to pay any cost just to have her. And just like he demanded his father, so he also demanded Jacob and his sons here, just give me the girl to be my wife. I don't care what it takes. I want her. Give her to me. Neither Hamer nor Shechem mentioned the rape. Jacob didn't say anything. But his sons came back from the field because they were so upset about it. Surely they would have something to say, right? Let's find out. Look at verse 13. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father, Hamer, deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. We cannot do this thing, they said to him. Giving our sister to an uncircumcised man is a disgrace to us. We will agree with you only on this condition. If all your males are circumcised as we are, then we will give you our daughters, take your daughters for ourselves, live with you and become one people but if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Jacob still hasn't said a word. And even though he was the patriarch of the family, the one who should be speaking on behalf of the family, he doesn't. He's quiet. It was his sons who answered Hamer and Shechem instead. But notice how they answered in verse 13. Again, commentary from Moses. They answered him deceitfully. Apple doesn't far fall from the tree, right? But Jacob's sons are about to bring deceit to a whole new level. Circumcision was this sign of God's covenant with Abraham, and that covenant was designed to bring blessing to the nations through Abraham's family. But Abraham's great-grandsons here are using it as a disguise of blessing that would allow them to take revenge against Shechem for what he did to their sister. Remember back in verse 7 that it, it said that when they heard about the incident, they were deeply grieved, but it also said they were what? Very angry, right? Now, in the English, that's, that's like, that doesn't seem to do justice, what, what's happening there. They were furious. They were filled with rage. They were very angry. James 1.20 says, human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness, and we're about to see that reality played out here. We ought to be righteously angry at injustice when we see it. We ought to be deeply grieved at the, that one human being, one, one person who has been made in God's image has done violence to another human being, another image bearer of God. If you are 
unaffected by that. You might want to check your heart. We cannot be callous to that. We should not be callous to that. We should not remain silent about injustice, but instead we should call it what it is. It's sin. It's wickedness. It's evil. But we should never, listen, we should never respond with fury and rage because those things don't lead to justice. They lead to vengeance. Those are not the same thing. Jacob's sons disguised their fury and their rage with a business deal that undermined not only God's covenant, but God himself. Look at verse 18. Their words seemed good to Hamer and his son Shechem. The young man did not delay in doing this because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most important in all his father's family. And so Hamer and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city. These men were peaceful, are peaceful toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and move about in it. For indeed, the region is large enough for them. Let's take their daughters as our wives and give our daughters to them. But the men will agree to live with us and be one people only on this condition if all our men are circumcised as they are. Won't their livestock, their possessions, and all their animals become ours? Only let's agree with them and they will live with us. All the men who had come to the city gates listened to Hamer and his son Shechem, and all those men were circumcised. Hamer and Shechem totally bought in on the deal. Verse 19 shows us Shechem's eagerness to oblige, right? Like he was the first one in line. But the requirement was that all the men of the city be circumcised, not just the one who wanted to marry Dinah. And so Hamer and Shechem needed to convince their fellow citizens to buy into this as well. Now, we've already seen a number of times in Genesis that the city gate was the place where the men of the city would gather to conduct business and make decisions. And so that's where Hamer and Shechem went. And we were told in verse 2 that Hamer was the, the ruler, the chieftain of this region, And in verse 19, we see that Shechem was the most important in all his father's family. So these two guys are walking into this meeting with the most sway. They have have all of the influence coming to talk to these men. And once again, they left out the part about Shechem raping Dinah. Instead, they tried to convince the rest of the men about all they would gain if they agreed to this condition and got circumcised. They say, listen, hey, won't their livestock, won't their possessions, won't, won't all of their animals become ours? These, in other words, these men, they're going to they're gonna agree to live with us and be one people. We get to, to have all of their stuff and they're going to they're gonna live like us. They're going to follow our rules. What is there to lose? That phrase, one people, has shown up twice now. Did you catch that? Once in verse 16, once in verse 22. You know, the last time that Hebrew phrase was used was back in Genesis 11 when the Lord came down and he looked and he saw that all the nations were gathering together and building the Tower of Babel as one people. Right after that, he confused their language and he scattered them so that they would stop building the tower if you remember the reason that they were building the tower, it was to usurp God. 
Let's just go up to where he is. Make a name for ourselves, they said. The use of that Hebrew phrase again here serves to remind Moses, his Israelite audience, the ones that are, are originally reading this, and now us, that, that what Jacob's sons have offered and what the men of Shechem has, have accepted is self-focused and not God-focused. This is a direct violation, a, a, a usurpation, a rebellion against God. Needless to say, the men of the city liked what they heard, and they agreed to the deal, and so they were all circumcised. Hamer and Shechem and the men of the city, they all totally bought into the deception that Jacob's sons were peaceful toward them. They had no idea what was about to happen. Let's read verse 25. On the third day when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, went into the unsuspecting city and killed every male. They killed Hamer and his son Shechem with their swords, took Dinah from Shechem's house and went away. Jacob's sons came to the slaughter and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks, herds, donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. They captured all their possessions, dependents, and wives and plundered everything in the houses. It was all a big ruse. It was all a big ruse to make the men of the city physically weak while they're still in pain, unable to defend themselves from attack. And it was Simeon and Levi. Did you notice this? Leah's second-born and third-born sons. Dinah's brothers. These were the two men that went in with their swords and slaughtered, as Moses says, every man in the city including Hamer and Shechem. And after the slaughter, the rest of Jacob's sons came in and they looted the city. They plundered it and they used the defilement of their sister as justification for their actions. Now, make no mistake, what Shechem did to Dinah was heinous. It was deplorable. It's unacceptable. And it warranted punishment. But it did not warrant this punishment. We need to be clear here. All of Jacob's sons answered sin with sin. All of Jacob's sons answered sin with sin. Instead of seeking a just punishment that fit the crime, they repaid evil for evil, as Romans 12, 17 puts it. Simeon and Levi committed genocide. They wiped out a whole city of Hivite men. The rest of the sons went into the city, and you know what they did? They saw what they wanted, and they took it. Just like Shechem did with Dinah, just like Eve did with the forbidden fruit, their actions were every bit as deplorable and heinous as the one that they were self-righteously punishing. Jacob hasn't said a word in this entire narrative. Where are you, Jacob? He's been silent the whole time, right? And of all the times that he could have and should have opened his mouth, it's only now, after this incident, that he finally chose to do so. Look what he says in verse 30. 
Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me, making me odious like a stench to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they answered, Jacob's sons answered, should he, Shechem, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Raw and honest, right? Jacob should have spoken up on behalf of his daughter Dinah. He should have held Shechem accountable and rebuked Hamer for his inaction as a father and as a leader of that area. Jacob should have stopped his sons from carrying out their deceitful plan, but instead he remained a passive father and a passive leader throughout this whole story. And after irreparable damage had been done in multiple ways, he finally opened his mouth and rebuked his sons, but his rebuke was focused on the damage that he perceived was done to him. Not to his daughter, not to the people in the city of Shechem. Jacob's rebuke was driven by his fear of people rather than by his fear of the Lord. It seems as though he had already forgotten about how the Lord rescued him from his brother Esau just a handful of verses ago, right? When Jacob thought that Esau was going to attack and kill him and his family, he split him into two camps, then he prayed to the Lord and asked for protection. And when the brothers finally reached each other, what happened? Esau took off. He ran toward him, embraced his brother, threw his arms around him, hugged him, and they wept. And they reconciled. Here Jacob was certain that he and his entire family would be destroyed by the inhabitants of the land once they heard that Jacob's sons, what Jacob's sons had done to the people of Shechem. And Jacob put all of the blame directly on who? His sons. Hear what he says? You have brought trouble on me. You have made me like a stench to the inhabitants of the land. In other words, you have ruined my reputation with all these people and you've brought death to us all. Then this whole story ends with a rhetorical question from Jacob's sons. Their response to Jacob's rebuke is a rebuke of their own. You know what they say? Should Shechem have treated our sister, your daughter, like a prostitute? It's a pretty solid argument, right? Isn't that what he did? Isn't that what Shechem did? He raped Dinah and then he offered to compensate her father and brothers for it. Is that not the definition? But does that justify their murderous and plunderous response? Who is right? Who is right in all of this? Nobody is. Nobody is. They all sinned and fell short of the glory of God in the way they responded to the injustice that was done to Dinah. Jacob was sinfully passive and his sons were sinfully aggressive each rightly pointed out the other's wrongdoing. They had an accurate view of the other one, right? 
but they wrongly ignored their own sin. And you know what the irony is here? Is that we're in danger of doing the same thing if all we do is stand here and point out what the people in this passage did wrong without addressing the sin in our own hearts. Maybe you've never committed genocide, but Jesus says that if you have hatred towards someone in your heart, it's the same thing as murdering them. So tell me, how many people have you slaughtered with your hateful words and thoughts? James 4.17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, sins. So tell me, how many times have you responded passively with silence to a sinful situation? I want to tell you that my own answers to those questions immediately put me in great need alongside Jacob, alongside his sons. How about you? The truth is that we are all sinfully passive at times and we are all sinfully aggressive at times. And you know what that means then? That means that we are all in need of grace all the time. All the time. Not a single moment when we don't need it. We can see this need on a grand scale in our culture right now. Just spin the wheel. Pick a hot button issue. Okay? Listen. There really is a right and a wrong. And God's word is really clear on some of those things, and in some of those things, we need his wisdom to direct us and help us understand better. But there really is a right and a wrong. But you need to hear this. I need to hear this. There's also a wrong way to be right. And oftentimes on social media, on both sides of the political aisle, and even in the church, the arguments center less on the actual topic and more on the people on the opposing side. Listen, if we enter a conversation already hating the people that we're having the conversation with, then we've already lost the argument that we're trying to make, no matter how right that argument is. We also see, see our need for grace on a personal scale in our own homes. Remember how at the beginning I was trying to tell you how I was going to tell you how you're wrong and I'm right? I want to share a failure with you, and I want to see if you can relate to it. Sometimes when I see my kids doing something wrong, and I, I lose my patience, and I angrily tell them to stop, especially if it's something that they already know they shouldn't be doing, right? Maybe I've told them that that's wrong before, and they know that. But when I respond to their sin with anger, with impatience, then, then what have I just done? I've just sinned alongside them, right? And now I need to ask for their forgiveness just as much as they need to ask for mine. But when I ask them to forgive me, you know what I do? I start to justify my sin. Look, I'm sorry I got angry with you, but I told you multiple times not to do it. And it's just so frustrating when you don't listen. You ever said something like that to your kids? You ever said, I'm sorry, but to your spouse? Or to your parents? 
Maybe you take the passive approach and you avoid any kind of confrontation at all costs. If you've ever failed to ask for forgiveness when you should have said you're sorry, or if you've ever said, I'm sorry, but, and then have justified your sin with a longer answer, then listen, you've shown your need for the same grace that I need and the same grace that Jacob needs and the same grace that his sons need. This is why the gospel is such good news to us. Because God has provided that grace through his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel teaches us that God is not passive in his response to our sin. The gospel teaches us that God does not remain silent about it. Listen, we have all of this that tells us what God thinks about sin. 66 books that tell us one big story of how God did something about it. He makes it very clear in his word what is right and what is wrong. And he also makes it very clear that our, our sin makes us deserving of death and eternal punishment under his righteous wrath. God is the only one that gets to be angry and have it be righteous. We're called to be righteously angry, but let's just be honest. That doesn't last very long, does it? Nobody has to tell God, be angry and do not sin. But you know what God did? Instead of taking his sword and running through the city in blind rage and slaughtering everyone, you know what he did? directed his wrath somewhere else. He sent his son to an unsuspecting world, a world that didn't recognize him. But to all who did recognize him, who all who believed in his name, what did they get? They got the right to be called children of God. Why? Because that son willingly came and willingly died in the place of sinners. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus when he hung on the cross so that we could be forgiven. God did not justify our sin. We need to understand that. He does not justify any sin. He punishes every sin. No sin remains unpunished. No sin will remain unpunished. It either falls on you at the end of the age if you continue in rebellion against Christ or it's already fallen on him 2,000 years ago when he stretched out his arms and he died for you. Every bit of it is punished. God didn't justify our sin, but he did justify sinners. We were given Christ's righteousness when he took our sin upon himself and he paid our penalty for it. And, and his resurrection from the dead on the third day proved that his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for our sin debt completely and that we've been rescued from the power of Satan and sin and death forever. And you know what that means then? That means that Christ has given us the grace that we need to deal appropriately with sin when we see it in our lives and when we see it in the lives of of those around us. It means that we don't have to be like Jacob and let our fear of others keep us from speaking up about something when we know that thing is clearly wrong. If God's already given us his approval through Christ, 
We don't have to fear the disapproval of others and be passive in our response to sin. We can and we should speak up. It also means that we don't have to be like Jacob's sons and let our rage over injustice fuel our desire for vengeance. Instead, we can be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because we remember that God's own righteous wrath against us was satisfied on the cross. How does God describe himself to us? Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love forgiving thousands of generations, but he will not let the sinner remain. I'm totally butchering that last part. You know this though, right? He will not let sin go unpunished, visits the iniquity of the fathers onto their sons to the third and fourth generation, right? We're all responsible for our rebellion against God. No sin goes unpunished. He would be unjust if that were the case. Christ himself keeps us from turning a blind eye to sin and from responding to it with blind rage. If we want to see and respond to sin appropriately, we need to keep looking at Jesus. But you need to know that, you, that, that if you don't have Christ, then the righteous wrath of God remains on you. Why? Because God will not leave sin unpunished. And because you remain in rebellion against God. Jesus came once to bring mercy and forgiveness, but there's a day coming soon when he will return, this time with sword in hand, to an unsuspecting world that has rejected him. And then it'll be too late. The only way to escape his justice is to receive his mercy. And the good news of the gospel is that he offers that mercy freely to anyone who comes to him and confesses their need for it. So why not be honest about your sin? Why not be honest about your need for rescue and run to Jesus? Why not turn from your sin and trust him? Because God rescues sinners, we should respond to sinners in a way that leads them to his rescue. Through their own sinful responses to someone else's sin, Jacob and his sons all proved that none of them was the rescuer that God had promised. You remember Genesis 3.15, the serpent crusher? It's not any of these guys. We got to wait. At least as we read, right? Aren't you so glad that we don't have to wait in real life? Aren't you so glad that we're on the other side of the serpent crusher? That he already came and did what God promised that he would do? We don't have to look any further. We don't have to wonder anymore. We can look at Jesus. None of these men was the rescuer that God had promised. Instead, they all, like us, proved their own need to be rescued. But praise God that the rescuer, Jesus Christ, has come. And with him has come all the grace that we need. So let's not respond to sin sinfully. 
but gracefully as we rest in the rescuer and live in the righteousness that he has given to us. Let's not remain silent toward injustice and let's not seek vengeance against the unjust. Let's seek justice and love mercy as we walk humbly with our God who is just and merciful, the God who does not reward sin, but who redeems sinners. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you hold the world in your hands. Father, that you are a just and righteous and good and holy God who does not tolerate injustice. And yet, Lord, you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in merciful and steadfast love. And in your divine wisdom and patience, you waited to punish your son so that we could be set free. Father, may we never take that for granted. And would you please help us by your spirit, your word, your church to live in the freedom of the gospel, to be as honest about sin as you are, and to point everyone, including ourselves, to the great rescuer, Jesus Christ. Amen.